0: In this week's episode, Jeff McDonald, mental health campaigner, business transformation consultant, and co-founder of Minds at Work, joins Paul in an open conversation about his struggle with being diagnosed with anxiety-fueled depression and how the day his friend took his own life was a day that changed his life. Previously the global VP of HR for 25 years at Unilever, Jeff shares his devotion to ending the stigma of depression and anxiety in the workplace with the hopes to inspire leaders to embrace mental health and empower organizations to support the well-being of their employees. What are organizations really doing to tackle stigma? Have mental health speakers and initiatives just become a tick box activity in the workplace? Paul and Jeff speak openly about their experiences in space and how organizations can be held accountable for the steps or lack of steps they're taking to tackle these issues. If you think Every Mind at Work can help your business, then head over to everymindatwork.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to share with a friend and leave us a five-star review ever enjoy
1: the show. So Jeff it's an honor to have you here on the every Mind podcast. How are you today?
2: Uh, good thanks Paul and um, yeah thank you for inviting me and asking me to have a conversation with you over a subject which I think we both very very passionate about.
1: Yeah and you just said that you've just come back from South Africa so it's a busy day for you today so I appreciate you. Oh,
2: I've just had the most wonderful you know every year I go and get a sun injection uh, <laughs> to my sort of happy place in the world, a little village in the Western Cape called Hermanus. And, uh, and it helps me get through most of December and most of January. So, yes, I'm now back and rearing to go.
1: Yeah, you're not going to get that in the UK. You're not going to get that little bit of sunshine. <laughs> in, in Although, I mean, the, the light, the,
2: this morning was absolutely beautiful and yesterday was beautiful. So, yeah, but it's now... You brought, you brought the sun with now. you then? No, it's clouding over now. I don't know where you are, but where I am, it's clouded over, unfortunately.
1: Yeah no, but no, like I say, appreciate your time, and and I think I said to you as before I hit record, you know I met you, well before before the pandemic, so however many years ago now, and um I was facilitating an event, and you was one of the speakers, and I remember hearing you speak and share your own story, and it was it was really hard hitting, and and as someone who shares, you know my own experience, it's always good to hear more people come at it from a personal point of view. But also I think what was really good here in your story was your your credibility when it comes to you know the corporate space and, and the workplace. And you know, it's something that I really wanted to dive into in, in today's episode. So um you are you're a heavyweight in this industry. So like I said, I appreciate you taking the time out. But I think it would be good to start with a little bit about you know who you are now um but also what inspired you to to kind of do the work that you do.
2: Oh, thank you, Paul. Um, and um, I mean, I, I, I'm really I'm just a, a kind of ordinary guy who through my own lived experience of anxiety-fueled depression and then the loss of a very good friend to suicide, you know, it, it, it was that moment that he died and me realizing that He hadn't been able to have a conversation about how he was feeling, alpha, male, Afrikaner, South African. I suppose that was the real catalyst um, for me to just want to do something in the world with my own lived experience and try and just, in some small way, make it a better place. Mm. And so, yeah, you know, back in 2008, I got very, very ill with anxiety-fueled depression. Uh, at that time I was, I was doing a very senior HR role in Unilever, looking after all of our home care, care world. And, um, you know, the day that I was diagnosed, I remember walking out the doctor's rooms and sort of saying to myself, I'm not going to be burdened by the stigma. That is associated with the diagnosis that I've just been given, and so I went home and i told my i told my daughters, I told my wife, I told some of my close friends, and I told some of my colleagues at work. And um, I mean, I had to take three months three months off work. I mean, I was I was so ill. There's no ways I could be at work. Um, and I had dark moments during during that phase of learning to recover. And, and live with being an individual who is susceptible to anxiety feel, depression. And in my darkest, darkest moments, there was only one thing that kept me going. And the one thing that kept me going in my darkest moments during my phase of recovery was the most powerful emotion in the world. And it's called love. And the only reason I felt loved by my line manager, by my daughters, my wife, my friends, was because I'd been open about my illness. And I suppose it was a combination of feeling loved together with a real sense of hope. I used to meet with a colleague who two years prior to my illness had been so ill, he'd been admitted to the Priory. I was never that ill here in the UK and um, I used to meet with Martin every 10 days. And you know what I saw, Paul? I saw he was better. Mm. And you know what that did? It gave me so much hope. It It gave me that little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, which kind of said, you know what? You can get through this. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And I think it was a combination of that sense of feeling loved and that sense of hope that were probably the two most powerful ingredients in my own recovery. And yes, of course, I took medication. And yes, of course, I slowly got back and did a bit of exercise. And yes, of course, I did some cognitive behavioral therapy. But as you and I know, I mean, we're all different and those things don't work for everybody. But you know what I think can work for everybody who is struggling and who's listening to us right now, who might be struggling, just to feel loved and to know that there's hope, that recovery is possible. Those are such powerful ingredients. And so then I go back to Unilever, I carry on my job after three months, I slowly reintegrate, and then in 2012, four years after my crucible moment, one of my close friends dies by suicide. And I lie in bed that night, and I think to myself, what's the difference between him and me? And I come to the simplest of conclusions. And the conclusion I come to, I've been able to talk, he hadn't. Stigma had just killed my friend. And, you know, Paul, I'm not saying to you that had he been able to talk, he would definitely be alive today. I mean, I can't say that. But you know what I can say? Is had he had just one conversation, just one, I want you to think of a grain of sand. There is a tiny, tiny chance he'd be alive today. There's a tiny chance. And I just thought, you know what? I wanna give people that tiny chance. I just want people to feel that they genuinely have the choice to just put their hand up and ask for some help if they're struggling mentally or emotionally. And I suppose that was the catalyst. I then led a piece of work in Unilever for about two years around breaking stigma. In the middle of 2014, I left
3: Unilever to go out
2: into the world, driven by a very deep, deep sense of purpose. And that is to create workplaces and not only workplaces called family groups, friendship groups, where every single person in that setting feels that they genuinely have the choice to turn to a peer, to a friend, to their loved one, and just say, you know what? I'm struggling. I need some help.
1: So true. I've got about 10 questions off the back of that already um, because it just resonates with me so, so much. Um, You know, firstly on the, the stigma part in organizations. It's something that I focus a lot on and I know you do and we do because you can have any shiny object, any initiative, but unless you tackle stigma none of those shiny objects or initiatives are going to be used or utilized in any way. And, you know, as you say that feeling able to say to someone, you know what, I'm having a bad day today is far greater than any of those initiatives in my opinion. And you know, we did a study last year when we polled a lot of employees across multiple businesses and it was nearly 10,000 employees. And we asked them who would they speak to when it comes to mental health in the workplace, mental health first aiders, HR, colleagues. And I'm sure you don't, aren't going to be surprised by this, but 49% of them said no one, you know, they wouldn't feel comfortable to speak to anyone. And the reason why what you just shared, and it brought me back to that moment where I first heard you speak actually and why it resonates so much with me is because I think that's what my dad needed. Like he, I I tell my dad's story now that he had so many of those tools. He run every day. He meditated. He meditated in 2006 before it was cool, right? He, He had all of that stuff, but I believe what was the strongest thing for my dad, which led to his demise and his suicide, was the shame that he carried to not feel like he could talk to me, my mom, his friends, his colleagues about what he was going through. And as you've shared with your friend there, it's like what's the difference between you and him it's that shame and that stigma and being able to say to someone i'm struggling and start that conversation it's so powerful mm. it's yeah i'm kind of like lost for words because it's so 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 true to what i've started to understand about my dad you know
2: yeah wow it's yeah thank you, for yeah. Sharing that. Thank you for sharing. And, and i mean when you but you know paul you... i just just you know what you just said i was on a panel this morning and you know, there were these organizations who were all talking about the amazing initiatives and the stuff mm-hmm. that they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I just said to them, I said, I said, you know, I think that's fantastic. I love it, what you're doing. But let me just tell you, if you have not addressed stigma, then people are not going to use the stuff or they're not going to feel comfortable to have the conversations. I said, and, and you have to, you have to invest time energy and effort and it'll take you 18 months Mm -hmm. to truly create a culture and a space where people feel they can talk about this stuff and let's not get let's not get carried away by the fact that we are now offering all the stuff to our employees and okay they must now use it and get on with it without Mm -hmm. addressing the stigma issue you're so right
1: yeah and i think that's a you know a question I want to ask you because we do a lot of work around that. And I always talk about when I started to do talks in organization, I started to realize that I was becoming a tick box and I'm sure maybe it was the same for you. You know, they want, they want me in a world mental health day. They want me in a mental health awareness week. And it was what happens afterwards. And then I slowly started to realize that, you know, a lot of organizations focus on the what and not the why. Mm. The what is like you said, we don't, we've got all this stuff, but the why is why are you doing it and the stigma behind it. But I think a lot of organizations are fearful of still doing it, still tackling stigma and culture, because like you said, it might take 18 months, two years, three years, takes a lot of buy-in. So is there any tips that you've got with your experience or anything that you've seen where if someone's listened to this, they're in HR, and they can start to do something today to try and tackle that stigma, what would you recommend?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I think there are, there are a couple of things. Um, I mean, the first thing is you've really got to get the CEO and his executive team fully aligned and committed to advocating and being an agent of change to address the stigma of mental ill health in that workplace. And, you know, sometimes that requires... Mm -hmm bringing an external catalyst into the organization to have that conversation with that executive team, Mm. to move them from a state of kind of being aware of mental ill health issues, sort of understanding those issues, to actually becoming that advocate and that agent of change. And, And that needs some sort of catalytic intervention, maybe somebody external to come in and to really to really get them to shift their behavior and their emotional connection to addressing this. Once we've we've achieved that, then you've got a CEO, you've got a chief financial officer, you've got a chief HR officer who are gonna be prepared to invest some financial and human resource behind addressing stigma Mm. and the culture. So Paul, it's not good enough to say to me, oh, you know what, we're doing a lot of work around stigma because we've trained some mental health first aiders. I'm sorry, every single person in the organization should be trained. If you said to me, what are the, what are the three things that an organization could do to really address stigma over an 18 month period? The first is you would train every single person in that organization. And I'm not saying you have to send everybody on a mental health first aid England course. But give them a 90 minute, give them a 90-minute, two hours. You know, Paul, I often say, we do it for safety,? Eh? Mm-hmm. You can't go into an organization without having had some sort of safety briefing or had some safety training. You, you, when you get inducted into an organization, it's obligatory that you will get some safety training. Mm. It should be the exact same for mental health. Ninety minutes, two hours. Just build the awareness, build the understanding. basic, basic stuff. But guess what? If you've got, got 40,000 employees, that's gonna, that's gonna, you have to make an investment in doing that, right? And that's why we've got to get the executive team fully behind this. But I think training, number one. Second is campaign. Run some campaigns across the organization. And again, that's going to that's require some investment. And it's going to require human resource to execute, to design, to develop those campaigns. But three times a year, Get some campaigns going where you're raising the awareness. You're beginning to get the conversations going in the organization. And then thirdly, and probably the most powerful, and you've spoken about it, is encouraging people in the organization from the top to the bottom to share their story. Mm. To share their story. And Paul, my experience in Unilever, the work that I did while I was still there, probably the most powerful leader in normalizing this conversation Was when we had people of influence and who people can resonate with in the organization sharing their stories. And not everyone's got stories like you and I, which are significant crucible moments in our life, but we've all got a story. You know what? I'll give you a good example of it a third party story. And I always say, you know, if you're going to tell a story of a third party, please get their permission first because we've got so much stigma still. But if you give it, we had a chief scientist in Unilever. His name was David Blanchard. I remember David coming into the office one day, and he wrote a blog to his 3,000 scientists around the Unilever world. This is the chief scientist in Unilever. He sits on the Unilever executive. And he wrote a blog to his 3,000 scientists, and he titled it, What is it like to be the father of a daughter who suffers from general anxiety disorder? Now, he got his daughter's permission. He got his wife's permission. but He wrote that blog of what is it like to be a father. Do you know that the, the scientist in Bangalore, she knew she had a leader who would understand if she put her hand up. So storytelling and sharing of stories, I think is the most, but what we've got to, you know, what I'm seeing happen, I see a lot of young people today being prepared to share their stories. You know what I mean? And that's what gives me so much hope. Because those people are one day going to be the CEOs and the chief financial officers of organizations. It gives me so much hope. But it's not good enough to just have some young people and some middle managers. We We need people of influence right across the organization, from the CEO down to the shift manager in the factory, doing some storytelling. So training, campaigning, and storytelling. And you know what? That's not difficult. We know how to do all of that stuff. It's a matter of will. Are we willing to invest the time, the energy, and the financial resource to create a truly, truly psychologically safe place? And you know what I would say to any CEO is tell me why you wouldn't do that. Why would you not want to do that? Why would you not want to create an organization where people feel they can bring their whole selves to work, where they can feel energized, where they can flourish, and they can give of their best? Why would you not want to do that?
1: I think what's so important about that is like you say, it's simple. It's often overlooked because we're looking for that shiny object still. Um, But also all three are so importantly linked because I know what it's like trying to get people to share stories when you haven't done any education. People are like, well, I've got no story to tell. I'm not, I'm not, you know, mentally ill because, you know, again, I'm very open about, I believed mental illness growing up was, what i saw in the newspapers and the the tv and i'm sure it was the same for you and and i think that education understanding piece is so important for a leader to go you know what this is real i have bad days my children might be struggling let's do something about it but like you say that education is so so important isn't it
2: but i think also your point which was that leader coming to the realization that at an emotional level that this is okay, and this is the right thing to do. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then saying, you know what? I'm going to advocate for this. I'm going to be an agent for change. You know, Paul, I, 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 I can't handle the statistic of one in four and one in six. It's one in one. <laughs> We've all, every single one of us, there's nobody throughout the world who has not had bad days, who's not had bad weeks. We've all experienced different variations of mental ill health. Mm-hmm. We all have. And I think, I think your point of getting that leader to almost connect to this emotionally, and once we've got them to connect to this emotionally, then they become this advocate. They become this agent of change. And then we get on and we invest in the education. We invest in the campaigning. We invest in storytelling, coaching people how to tell some of their stories, making sure they've got the right kind of support. You know what it's like. You tell mm-hmm. your story. <laughs> mm-hmm. You said it to me earlier. People then, you know, like a, like a, a bit of honey around yeah. bees. I mean, they just swarm around you and want to share their stories with you. Yeah. And so you need a bit of support and you need a bit of, uh, you know, emotional hand holding while you are listening to all this stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that element's so important. I, I learned that and I'm sure maybe you learned that. And I had to process that myself of when you share your story, you're going to have a lot of people share stories back. Mm. And, and I had to work through the switch off boundaries of doing that whereas a lot of organisations will encourage those conversations which are great but it's the same as as you say mental health first aiders who's supporting them you know who's supporting these champions exactly. who's making sure they're still you know supported themselves because they need that that support um and and one thing that you said that really really stood with me as well is is that almost continual conversation through the communications that organizations are doing. It's like, I'm sure you know this, it always used to happen once a year. And then, you know, as you said, I'm I'm of the firm believer once again, it's one in one. It's always a conversation that we need to be having. And that communication piece, there are still so many organizations that I speak to, I'm sure you do as well, that will just wait until a week of the year, which is in May, to do something about it, which doesn't change any culture or stigma, does it?
2: Yeah, you know, Paul, I've, um, you know, over the last eight or nine years, um, what I've I've realized is the most limiting resource that I see in workplaces that I go into, irrespective of the size, the sector, and the part of the world that I'm in. The most limiting resource is the energy of people. People are frazzled at work. They are frazzled. And if you don't believe me, and those who are listening to us, go and get Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer's book from Stanford University, and it's called Dying for the Paycheck. Mm. It's not called Thriving for the Paycheck. It's called Dying for the Paycheck. And he's done all the longitudinal research on the impact that workplaces are having on people's overall health, well-being. And if energy, and not if, I believe, and I'm sure people would buy into this, the most critical enabler of your performance at an individual level, at a team level, and at an organizational level, is the energy of people. You know, when Arsenal is playing Chelsea, and I'm an Arsenal supporter, by the way, If Arsenal have got, if they are fueled with energy on the day, I'm telling you, they'll win that game. I mean, this bloody Liverpool, where, where's this lot come from? Right? <laughs> you know, but guess what? They, they parachute this guy called Klopp into that club. And he just brings energy and passion in everything yeah. he does. And look at them. Look at how they perform. And do you know where we get our energy from, Paul? We get our energy from our well-being, from mm. being physically healthy, from being emotionally healthy, from being mentally healthy, from having a sense of purpose and meaning. And so then you know what I now say to a CEO? My question to a CEO is, if you buy all of that, that energy and the well-being of your people is the most critical enabler of performance. Why is the well-being of your people not a strategic priority in this business? Why is it what you've just described, a week called the well-being week, where I care for you for one week of a year and then I flog you to death for 51 weeks of the year. Mm. Or guess what? We've put a few bananas next to the blue in the canteen. So you can have bananas and fruits and nuts in eating rooms. And guess what? We care for you once a year, you know. I mean, come on. I mean, that, that, there's nothing strategic about that. Mm. And so what I tried to create over the last over the last 18 months um is, is instead of just provoking these chief executives or CFOs who roll their eyes at me when I use the word well-being. And therefore, that's why I much prefer the word energy. But my provocation now is followed with, well, let me me, me show you what it might look like if you were to truly elevate the energy of your people to being a strategic priority in this business. What would you do over a three-year period? What would you execute? And that's where I think we need to take this conversation now. We should really be provoking those executive teams and asking them the question, why would you not want energized, thriving individuals in your organization? And the only way you're going to get that is if you, in a strategic way, enhance the well-being of your people, physically, emotionally, mentally, and provide a sense of purpose and meaning for people at work. And guess what? Over the next 18 months or two years, This is what a plan would look like. And coming back to your point, you know where it starts, breaking stigma. Mm. Starts with stigma. Starts with defining your well-being framework, looking at the resources that you've got in place, changing the ways of working in your organization, getting your leaders to role model and expect them to show behaviors where they are looking after their own health so that their people think they can do the same. And then finally, getting individuals to take more accountability to look after their own well-being. Because one of the things that is happening right now, Paul, is that organizations who are starting to think of this more strategically are investing the resources behind a well-being framework, starting to look at changing ways of working and things like that, making all these resources available. But then what? Nobody uses them. There's a statistic out there that says 5% of employees use all the well-being resources that the company is offering. So you know what? We have to also hold people accountable. And I think we should do that through encouraging people to use these resources as part of their development. Mm. So when I have a development conversation with you, I'm not just going to talk to you about your skills and whether you've got the right skills to do the job or your behavior, whether you've got the right behaviors. I'm also going to talk to you about how important it is for you to be energized to do this job. And what are you doing to maintain your energy? We, we as a company have invested all these resources. Now you tell me over the next six months, what are you going to focus on? To maintain your energy so that you give of your best in this organization. Just like I would do if you're missing a skill, I'd send you on a training course. And in six months' time, we'd say, okay, let's see. Are your PowerPoint skills improved? Uh, mm. great they are.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot because again, it's as an employee, it's not your responsibility to, to make everyone happy. And and equally it's about, like you said, we're providing a lot of resources, but we've got to try and guide employees to have that ownership. And yeah. I feel like we, we do lack ownership when it comes to mental health a lot currently. Yeah,
2: individuals lack it. They lack and they, you know, and, and also I think we as individuals also, and, you know, maybe you and I are in the same boat, but our crucible moments in life, what it's done for me, I talk for myself, is it's made me prioritize my health. It's the mm. most important priority in my life. Mm. I, will, I will not go a single day in a week without spending 60 to 90 minutes on maintaining my recovery as somebody who is susceptible to anxiety fuel, depression. And I can tell you, there are so many people out there. And so, therefore, there are things that don't, you know, I don't, I don't say, oh, I had emails to do. That's why I couldn't go for my run this morning. <laughs> you know why? Because my run is the priority. Mm. But there, I think there are so many individuals out there that have deprioritized the most valuable asset they have, which is their health. Yeah. They've deprioritized it. And then they don't put the boundaries in place. They don't make the time. They find all sorts of excuses as to why they're so busy and they can't dedicate mm-hmm. some time to themselves. Well, Sorry, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Yeah. This airplane goes down. We put the oxygen mask on ourselves first. Then we tend to. our filter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's like you say, it's not a time issue that everyone gives it. It's a priority issue. It's like, exactly. if, 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 you know, I always use the example of, um, you know I'm, I'm a dad you know son comes up to me and he says daddy 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 come in the room and i'm like no 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 i'm, I'm busy with work i'll come in in half an hour i always use the example if he says daddy 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 i've cut my head <laughs> it's bleeding come in the room i'm straight in the room right because it's more of a priority and and i always say with 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 mental health and you know i use the example myself of similar to you I, i'm naturally programmed to be very reactive i'm naturally programmed to not pay attention to it to not look after it but i have to remind myself and force myself to do it every day and those little moments in 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 my life when you know i'll get up in the morning early and i'll try and get out go to the gym or go for a walk or something that just is good for me and my again my my sons will be like where you going you know my wife might be saying where you going (laughs) it's like this guilt trip of like oh you know what i'll skip that today i'll stay here I still go for the walk, however selfish I feel, because that makes me a better dad. That makes exactly. me a better leader. And it's, it's exactly. getting people, again, it comes back to what we said earlier. But I had to go through my own levels of education to understand that. And still people are in that stage where they don't understand it.
2: Yeah. But not only understand it, as you said, prioritize it. Mm. It becomes a priority. And yes, I am a selfish kid. I am a selfish kid when it comes to looking after the most important priority in my life. I can be a better husband. I can be a better father. All those things that you've said. So, you know, as we say that, I, I'd love to leave our listeners with a little little acronym, which has been so good for me. And, and I share it with you as well. Um, so, so you know, I said I spend 60 to 90 minutes every single day. And then you know what Paul, you know what they, people say to me? They say, mm-hmm. Jeff, where do you get 60 minutes to spend on yourself? And you know what I then say to them? One thousand four hundred and forty minutes in a day. Yeah, haven't you got sixty for yourself, or twenty, or fifteen? Mm-hmm. And the acronym that I apply is called Can Do. The C in Can Do stands for connection. So I will find five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes every single day to do some connection. Like mm-hmm. you've just said, it might be going and connecting with your son connecting with my daughter, connecting with my wife, connecting with nature, 10, 15 minutes every day. Connection is so important for our emotional health. That's why during COVID, we've had such high levels of anxiety and depression because we disrupted people's ability to connect socially. So connection is the C. The A in can do stands for be active. And I'm not saying you have to go and run a marathon. But what I am saying is go for that walk around the block, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, just get out there, go and do a bit of yoga in the lounge or whatever. But just, it's so good for your physical health, being active every single day, 15, 20 minutes. The N in can do stands for just try to be nice to somebody every single day, 30 seconds, say thank you, give some feedback, help an old lady across the road with a heavy bag of shopping when you're just nice to somebody and kind it gives you a sense of purpose it gives you a sense of meaning which is so good for our well-being the d in can do stands for discover be curious learn something new every day i'll take 10 minutes five minutes listen to one of paul's podcasts you know just put a podcast on and listen to a podcast for 10 or 15 minutes Stuff that you're interested in, just go and be curious. It's so good for our neural pathways. If we can do, remain curious, do a, do a jigsaw, do a, I don't know, a Sudoku, do a crossword. It's good for your mental health. And then finally, the O in do. And it's my biggest challenge, Paul, in the do acronym. And it's called observe, stroke recover. So every two hours, take five minutes to do nothing every two hours, five minutes where you do absolutely nothing. you go and make a cup of tea, stand outside and you do nothing. Mm. You might listen to a headspace app. You might listen to some of your favorite music. You might just look at the leaves and the daylight, but you do nothing. I could tell you <laughs> try it for five minutes. I mean, you know, you want to look at your bloody phone. You want to look at an email. I mean, those five minutes feel like hours. You know, the other day I went into a, I was sitting in a coffee shop and I was just doing nothing. And I looked, people looked at me as if, what is wrong with that guy? Yeah, no. what is wrong with him? He's just sitting doing nothing. He hasn't got a laptop open. He hasn't <laughs> not on his phone. He's just looking at me. I mean, so just every two hours, taking that five minute recovery break. You know, because we all know what it's like in big corporates and small corporates and startups and scale ups. You know. You go into meeting after meeting. There's a stress here. There's a stress there. It's like this bucket filling with water. Okay, and at the end of the day, it just overflows. And if you can just put a little release valve into that bucket, where every fa- every two hours you just release mm. and let some of that stress out. So that's it's as simple as that. Can do. And um, and I apply that little acronym every single day. And as you said, some for some people maybe activism for them right now. But connection and be nice to somebody and learning to recover. Start with that and spend 15, minutes a day just doing it. I
1: love that. I really like that. It's it's very similar to yeah. I I I try and there's so much that you can do that I feel sometimes we overcomplicate it. But like you said, it's as simple as like just observing the trees while you're making a cup of tea like yeah. we, we we're looking for this real complex solution when it isn't always yeah. a complex solution now of um, course
2: it gets complex if you're really ill yeah. and you've got a very ter- you, you know you're struggling badly with a, a significant form of depression or whatever mm-hmm. but you know but the proactive bit of just keeping yourself healthy is as yes. simple as can do
1: yeah i love that i love that there's two questions i want to finish off with um One is more of a personal question and then the other is just more focused around sort of, you know, workplace mental health. I think we'll start with a personal question because one of the the parts of your story, which really sort of has stood with me, was that you didn't want to take the burden of stigma. Like you wasn't afraid to go home and tell your wife, tell the people around you of what you was diagnosed with and what you was going through. Where do you think? that came from like why why do you feel like you took that three things i think there are four
2: things maybe three things and i always qualify that in you know in some of my speaking engagements when i talk about feeling that i could go and have this conversation and and what was in my favor and and paul there were there were a couple of things in my favor number one my personality I'm just the sort of guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. So mm. what you see is what you get. I'm not, I'm not the sort of guy who can mask his feelings. Mm. Look me in the eye and you'll see something's wrong. Just, I, so I am so lucky that I have that sort of personality. So that was the first thing that's in my favor or was in my favor. The second thing that was in my favor and I encourage anybody who's listening to us right now who might be feeling anxious, down, and it's been going on for a long period of time. I went to a doctor and I got a diagnosis. Do you know how liberating that was, Paul? Mm. I was liberated by the diagnosis. This wasn't me thinking that I was losing it. I had a medical diagnosis. It was liberating for me which I think was part of encouraging me to be able to talk about this. The third thing that was in my favor, Paul, is that when I had my crucible moment in life, I was 20 years into a career with Unilever and I was in a very senior HR job. So I I wasn't a young graduate starting my career or a junior manager or a middle manager who was like hugely ambitious and saw a career ahead of me. I had built 20 years of credibility. It was easier for me to be able to have that conversation. And you know what was the final bit well, I was, that was in my favor? And again, I speak to those who are listening to us as line managers. I had a line manager at the time who had a compassionate relationship to mental ill health. Mm. Not an empathetic relationship, a compassionate You know the difference between compassion and empathy? In compassion, there's no judgment. I was so lucky. And for those line managers that are listening to us right now, my challenge to you is, please reflect on your relationship to mental health. What is it? Are you intolerant? where you see people like me as a snowflake who's just trying to beat the system or sky the system? Mm. Or do you have a truly compassionate relationship? And if you are intolerant, all I ask those who are listening to us right now to do is go and be curious. Mm. Just go and be curious around mental health. Go and read. Go and learn about it. Go and talk to somebody who struggled. And if you can't find anybody, and by the way, I don't believe you can't in your friendship group, go and find a homeless person on the street and spend half an hour talking to them. Mm. They'll tell you what it's like for you to be depressed. So those were the things in my favor. My personality. A diagnosis had already built my credibility. I was in a very senior job, so I was lucky. But most importantly, I think, a line manager who had a compassionate relationship. Mm.
1: I really like that. Do you feel there was a part of that as well where you got that diagnosis and went to the doctors earlier on than maybe other people would have? No, I
2: didn't. I didn't. You know, it was my panic attack. Mm. You know, I had that panic attack. I woke up in the middle of the night with a panic attack. Never, ever experienced a panic attack in my life. That was the last straw to break the camel's back. But on reflection, Paul, I I so wish, you know, I often say, my mother taught me dental hygiene.
3: Mm.
2: Guess what? My teeth haven't fallen out.
3: Mm.
2: Nobody ever, ever taught me dental hygiene. Nobody ever taught me what were the symptoms that I should become aware of, that I should be in tune with. That might be suggesting that guess what, Jeff, you're moving from being stressed to becoming distressed, and you're becoming ill. I just wish, in some ways, that people I'd I'd known what those things were to look out for, because you know maybe I would have maybe I would have intervened earlier. Mm. But in some ways, I was quite lucky that I had this bloody panic attack, and you know the next day at midday, I'm in a doctor's room.
1: Mm. Yeah, I it's get a diagnosis. It's something that I I you know focus on a lot as well is is that very reactive approach that we all take and it's you know waiting until we get to a crisis point before we do anything about it so um no it's it's really encouraging to hear and i think again whenever you hear stories like yours and we spoke about hope earlier on they they always give individuals that are either listening to this or whatever, just that little bit of hope sometimes, as you said, you know, you knowing someone who had been through something similar and was okay, gave you that hope. And I think, you know, hearing your story and everything today is going to do the same for others. There's, there's one more question that I've got, which is a big, big question, but we kind of touched on it. I think before we hit record with the acceleration of the the pandemic and, you know, the pandemic making a lot more happen when it comes to well being in the workplace, but what does the future of mental health in the workplace look for you?
2: Paul, I think the future for me is that we give as much, we focus as much time, energy, financial, and human resource in, on the one hand, enhancing the mental and emotional health of our people, like we do in keeping people physically safe at work. Mm. So I often say we spend billions around the world in organizations in health and safety. Well, guess what? Most of those billions go to safety. Mm. They go to keeping people physically safe at work. And for me, the future has got to be that we also want to keep people emotionally and mentally safe at work. Mm. That's got to be the future. Where we invest, where we measure, where we do audits, where we, where, we, where we create a culture and a workplace whereby people's mental and emotional health is being protected. It's being enhanced, not diminished. The future for me is where we have workplaces, workplaces which truly, truly enhance the lives of people. You know, Paul, most workplaces I go into, people's lives are being diminished by going to work. And you know, it's so sad, and I'll tell you why it's so sad. Because work gives you a sense of purpose. Work gives you some routine. Work gives you the opportunity to connect and build relationships. Can be so good for us. And it should enhance our lives. And so I would hope that the pandemic, through the pandemic and through this focus on the well-being of our people, and seeing what goodwill that has generated, will begin to move to a place where we recognize and invest financial and human resource to enhance and maintain the emotional and mental health of people just like we do when it comes to physical safety. That's what I want to see.
1: I love that. I love that. Jeff, um, thank you so much for your honesty today, as always. And, and again, just the work that you've been doing in this in this space in particular. Um, in terms of if people want to find out more about you, find out more about Minds at Work, I know the amazing work that you do there. Um, where, where can they find out?
2: Oh, thank you, Paul. So, yeah, you know, just... MacDonald.co.uk is my website um you can also find me on linkedin and then the charity that i co-founded is called minds at work um and it's www.mindsatworkmovement.com
1: amazing jeff thank you so much really appreciate it thank you for your time and i could have carried on this conversation for a long long time but um we'll end it there because i know you're a busy man but thank you once again really appreciate it
2: thank you for having me paul